while we made it in the rain and the storms and the school drop-offs and the work pressures and everything, you guys are here. And I'm really excited to get to teach um, out of Romans 11 today. And usually when I have the opportunity to teach a passage of scripture, I really like to go through to the best of my ability and explain line by line. But I'm not going to do that today with Romans 11 because Romans 11 is actually a continuation of Romans 9 and 10 that we've been talking about. And if you were not here a few weeks ago when Katie taught on Romans 9, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast because it was awesome and it helps explain a lot. So this whole section, Romans 9 through 11, is hard to understand, right? It's kind of tricky. If you're like me, you probably read it and then went, I, I, what did I just read? I don't even know. So um, it's, it's a tricky section. It's this section of Romans where Paul is trying to explain the history of what is going to happen with the Gentile believers and the Israeli nation or the Israelites, the, the Jews. And so today what I want to do is just focus on what I saw as two topics within Romans 11 that really um, touched me, and I hope that it means something to you guys too. So the two themes or topics that I'm going to talk about from Romans 11 today are the blessing of the Gentiles being grafted into God's family and the prompting for us to pause and worship God. I read this quick summary of the whole chapter of Romans 11 from a commentary, so I'm just going to read this verbatim as the summary of the chapter. It says, Even though Israel heard and rejected the gospel, God has not entirely rejected them. Even now, some Israelites have accepted God's grace. Moreover, the rejection of the nation as a whole is not final, for God wills to save both Gentiles and Jews by grace. Praise his name. So that's kind of the summary. There you go. You have it. That's chapter 11. Now, the two themes that I want to talk about. Let's see if this works. Did I do it? <gasps> Yay. Okay, there's a lot of moving parts here for me to manage. So, um... I'm calling it the olive tree and the doxology. So these are the two topics that we're going to talk about today. The first part is about the olive tree, and Paul talks a lot in this chapter about the theme of grafting. So I'm going to start it off by telling you an embarrassing story about me. So here we go. When I was 15, I had a little problem. I had braces, which that alone, most 15-year-olds at some point have braces. But I became really paranoid about getting stains on my teeth while I had braces. So you can all psychoanalyze me for this story later. But basically, I became so paranoid that I started brushing my teeth really, really, really hard around the braces to try to make sure that I did not stain my teeth. What happened was that my gums started to recede to the point where I basically didn't really have any gums. And I know, this is crazy. This is so weird, right? <laughs> Katie knows me. She's known me for 20 years. So she's like, this makes sense. Yes. So I had to go to a periodontist who told me I was the youngest patient he'd ever had and basically have gum grafts. So, sorry, this is gross too, but he took, cut out sections of the roof of my mouth and attached them 
to my gums to make a new set of gums for me. Weird, I know, sorry guys. But basically, part of my body was not functioning the way that it was supposed to function. So what he did was take another part, attach it in a way that it could receive nutrients and become that part of my body and do the job that it needed to do. Now, 15, that's a long time ago. I just turned 39 this month. So it's so long ago that I don't think about it on a daily basis. I don't even remember that I have them. It doesn't affect my daily life. And probably up to this point, none of you have ever noticed that I had them, but you're all gonna be looking for them now. Yeah, so every time I smile really big, if one of you is like this, I'll, I'll, I get it. I, it's weird, I get it. So, <laughs> what does this have to do with Romans 11? Well, Paul spends a huge part of this chapter talking about the idea of grafting. Now, he uses the analogy of an olive tree for his explanation of grafting, but what he's using that olive tree for is to explain how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have become grafted into God's family. So... There's probably, I'm really bad with plants, so I'm sure there's a lot of other ways to graft, but one image that I found on the left there shows the little pieces cut out of the two branches and then they are attached together so that the grafted in piece can receive nutrients from the plant as a whole. Now remember here for a second, let's stop and take a step back. Paul, who was Paul writing to? He was writing to a diverse church, an early church in Rome that was made up of Jewish followers of Christ and Gentile followers of Christ. And we've seen in other chapters that we've talked about that he's been addressing some of their issues and some of the ways that they are kind of butting heads, being these two diverse groups now being a part of the same body. So keep that in mind as we talk about this. So with plants, grafting is a technique where a section of the stem with leaf buds on it is attached to an existing tree. The pieces are lined up and the grafted portion can now receive nutrients from the stalk and become a part of the tree as a whole, nourished by the plant and now able to thrive and become a part of that tree. I think it's interesting, as a side note, that the grafted portion actually adds something to the tree as well. Because usually the part that is removed is no longer working. It's no longer functioning to produce fruit for the tree. And this grafted portion, when it's added in, it can now thrive and produce fruit. So it's actually adding something to the tree as well. I love the imagery of olive trees. I'm gonna skip here too. These are pictures I got to go to Israel in 2017 and olive trees are abundant and I became really obsessed with olive trees to the point where, except for the fact that I kill all plants, I really want to like have a field and just plant olive trees in it. So these are olive trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane in, uh, on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem. Now. There's one of them, it's not this one, I didn't have a very good picture of the one that I'm gonna talk about here. But there's one of them there that our tour guide explained to us was probably about 900 years old. Now, none of the trees that are there today in the Garden of Gethsemane would have been there 2,000 years ago when Jesus was in the garden. 
but there was this tree that was 900 years old, they guessed, and our tour guide explained that through this process of grafting, it's very possible that a tree like that came from a tree that was there when Jesus was there. So I don't know. That's just kind of a fun side note, but I thought that was just so cool to think that even though I can't see a tree that stood there that Jesus sobbed under, I can see a tree that might have come from that tree. Now, going back to Romans 11, in Paul's analogy, the tree root is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom God established a covenant salvation relationship with. And we've talked about that around Romans 2, I think it was, where the sign of that covenant relationship was circumcision, but the salvation was by their faith, right? So that's the tree root in Paul's analogy here. The branches are the descendants of those patriarchs, the nation of Israel. Now, some branches at this point in time, some of the Israelites do believe and trust in Jesus and choose to follow him, and that is what he refers to as the remnant. Paul is one of those. He is a Jew who follows Christ, so he's part of this remnant of believing Israelites. Now, the branches that are removed, in Paul's analogy, are the unbelieving Israelites, the ones that reject Christ. The wild branches grafted in are the Gentiles. So you see, Israel's rejection has brought salvation to the Gentiles. It's made it accessible for them. And ultimately, Paul tells us it's going to lead to Israel's salvation. God has rejected Israel or abandoned his plan for them completely. But he also plans to bless the Gentiles. Now, I don't completely understand it. I don't completely get Paul's explanation of God's plan here. But what I do know is that God's plan clearly includes Jews and Gentiles at this point. It was revolutionary then, and it's a blessing to us still today. The grafted-in branches, the Gentiles now get to partake of the richness of God's covenant with Abraham. Even though they are not actual heirs, they are spiritual heirs now of Abraham and God's covenant with him, and they are now a part of God's family. So again, going back, remember who Paul is talking to. He's talking to this Roman church made up of Jewish followers of Christ and Gentile followers of Christ. And we've seen some of these themes coming up through Romans leading up to this point of their arguments and things like that that are going on where they're butting heads. And he is now basically putting the stamp on this and saying, hey, Jews, the Gentiles, they're in. They're in now. They're part of God's covenant of salvation. They're part of the family. And Paul's saying to the Gentiles here, he's saying, listen, you're in, but don't let that make you become prideful and arrogant. Humble. Now, some of this might seem kind of out there and unrelatable. And again, it's not something that I think about every single day either, that we are, you know, thank you to the Gentiles for being grafted in. But this is about us. 
And we have this opportunity today to stop and think about it and we should let it kind of amaze us. It happened a long time ago, we don't think about it, but let's think about this. Not many of us are ethnically part of the line of the Israelites. Most likely were the Gentiles. So I think it's pretty amazing to go back and read through this story, read through this analogy, and just take a moment and go, I got to be grafted in to God's family. We are the result of that grafting in. We can have a relationship with God now through salvation through Christ by our faith. In the past, God's promises were for Israel, but now Paul is making it clear that you and I are a part of God's family and we are grafted in. It's based on our faith. There's no room to boast about this. It's a supernatural connection now that we have to being a part of God's family. It reminds me when I was reading this of another passage that we actually studied last year when we studied Acts. But I want to go back and review this because I think it's, I don't know, it seems really cool to me. But in Acts 10, we have the story of Cornelius. And if you were with us last year during Bible study, you probably remember this passage. But Cornelius was a Roman centurion, so he was a Gentile, living in Caesarea. So Caesarea is this town along the Mediterranean Ocean in Israel. And Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is living there. And one day, an angel appears to him. And he tells him, hey, you need to send for Peter, Peter, who is the disciple of Jesus, in Joppa. Now, Joppa is like 30 miles south of Caesarea. I didn't bring a map, sorry. <laughs> but it's like 30 miles south along the Mediterranean. And so it's a, it's a good journey when you don't have a car, right? This is going to take them like a full day of walking to get there. So Cornelius sends two of his servants and a soldier, and he says, okay, an angel told me you need to go to this house. It's Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, and you need to ask for Peter and bring him back here. So simultaneous to their kind of like traveling there, their long you know, walk to Joppa, here's Peter. Peter's over at Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, and he goes up on the roof to pray. And while he's up there on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house praying, he becomes hungry. So someone's preparing him something to eat, and he falls into a trance. And this is where the story gets really weird because he has a vision. He has this vision of a sheet descending from heaven with all different kinds of animals on the sheet. There's flying creatures, there's reptiles, and there's four-legged creatures on this sheet that Peter sees. And he hears God's voice tell him, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm a Jew, and that's unclean for us. Because according to Jewish law, because the clean animals and the unclean animals were mixing on this sheet, he could not touch them. So three times, God tells Peter, kill and eat, and Peter won't do it. So he comes out of the trance, and now who arrives at the house but the two servants and the soldier that Cornelius has sent there? So they arrive, knock on Simon the Tanner's door, and said, hey, do you have a guy named Peter here? And meanwhile, God tells Peter through the Holy Spirit, there's some men here to get you. You're going to go with them? And you're, because I sent them to get you. Okay, so there's kind of these two things happening simultaneously. 
so Peter takes some believers, some Jewish followers of Christ, from Joppa with him, and the next day they leave with the soldiers and um, the servants and go back on another long 30-mile walk to Caesarea to see Cornelius. Now, Cornelius is expecting them to come. So what does he do? But he says, hey, come here, some of my friends and some of my family. We're going to gather together because Peter's going to show up and talk to us. So they're there waiting, and Peter arrives, and here's what he says. He says, you know that it is against the law for a Jew to interact or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So Cornelius explains to him, here's what happened three days ago. This angel told me to send for you. So we're here. We want to hear whatever God has for you to tell us. So Peter suddenly understands his vision. The vision of the sheet and the animals becomes clear to him, and he understands that God doesn't show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. So Peter tells Cornelius and his family and friends about Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes down on this group of Gentiles, and they become followers of Christ. And the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers that Peter had brought with him, they see this happening and they are amazed that the Holy Spirit has now descended on the Gentiles and that these people are baptized and they are now followers of Christ as well. So again, this is kind of a crazy story. Why do I bring it up? It is amazing to me to hear all of those details And all of the ways that God orchestrated this interaction to happen to show us that the Gentiles are now grafted in and a part of the family. It shows me in these intimate little details that God set up that he pursued the Gentiles. He desired to include them. He was doing, God was doing a new thing now. And the Gentiles could become followers of Christ and part of God's family. And again, this is not something we think about every single day. But this is a neat time to sit and think about that and just realize that it is kind of amazing that we are grafted into God's family. Now continue on with me in Romans 11. Oh, I think we're at the right side. Thank you. The second part is what I'm calling the doxology. So... Back in Romans 11 now, Paul has been writing this letter to the church in Rome, teaching about a lot of heavy and sometimes difficult truths. I imagine as hard as the letter is for us to understand fully now, put yourself in the shoes of the early church receiving it, and it was probably really hard for them to understand back then too. We have the benefit of studying it for 2,000 years, and still scholars disagree on what some of it means, and there's different opinions. Paul has reached this point in his letter, and he's talked about some really deep topics. He's discussed God's wrath, our sin, God's righteous judgment, the law, our justification by faith, our hope in Christ, living by the Spirit, God's sovereignty, 
and a lot more. There's a lot packed in there, and it's hard to wrap our minds around. So I just imagine that Paul gets to this point of writing, and everything that he's been writing about God causes him to pause, to reflect on who God is, and it moves him to respond in worship. How great are your ways, oh God, you are God and I am not. The last few verses in Romans 11 are verses 33 through 36, and I put them up here. And in some Bibles, you'll see a heading in this section called the doxology. And it says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, at first glance, this section doesn't really seem to fit with chapter 11 and chapters 9 through 11, that whole section like we've been talking about. Unless you try for a second to put yourself in Paul's shoes and realize that after writing all of this so far, 11 chapters worth of this letter, he has to just be completely overwhelmed with the truth of who God is and what God has done to the point that he responds by bursting out in praise and worship here. And this is what he writes. I almost picture Paul kind of furiously writing and writing and writing and writing and writing this letter, 11 chapters worth of letter, and then suddenly just being overcome and overwhelmed. And he just has to pause And he just has to cry out to God in response and say, Wow, God, you are amazing. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever found yourself just completely overwhelmed by who God is? Even when you can't fully understand all of his ways. Has reflecting on his truths and the truth of who God is ever caused you to just burst out? in praise to him because he's good. He has a plan for you. And even when we are sinful, he is faithful. So you see, it's good and it's right to ask questions and seek answers, to study and learn and seek understanding. To me, studying and learning is a form of worship. So it is good and it is right to ask questions and want to understand these passages of scripture that are hard and that we're studying. And through this letter, that's what Paul is doing for the church. He is trying to teach and explain some truths to this church in Rome. But we see here that it's also good sometimes to step back, to pause, and to simply say, you are God and I am not, with a humble heart and with reverence for God who is the creator of the universe. I have a favorite quote that I'm going to paraphrase by Vernon McGee, and I've remembered this for probably 15 years now, and it says, God has a way and God has a universe. You may think you have a better way, 
but you don't have a universe. Now, it could sound harsh, but there's something that's humbling about that, and there's some truth to that. It sometimes puts me in my place as being the created one and God as the creator. I'm not God. God is God. When I'm tempted to tell God how to do things or that this would be better or that I don't really like what he wrote here and it should be this way instead, it kind of helps me to remember and process that I don't have the perspective always to understand all of his ways because he has a universe and I don't. Can you say it one more time? Sorry. Sure. My paraphrase of it is, God has a way, and God has a universe. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. The actual quote is slightly different, but that's the way I've remembered it in my head for 15 years, so that's what sticks with me. But the verbatim quote says, this is God's universe, and he is doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. It's easier to remember, right? God has a way, God has a universe. I may think I have a better way, but I don't have a universe. So whenever I struggle, whenever I struggle with doubts or with my faith, what I do is I take it all the way back to creation and the fact that I am the created one and he is the creator. And when I stop and think about this, let's go through this for a second, where there was nothing God created. He made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the sun and the moon and the stars and the the land and the sea and all the creatures. He made you and he made me. It's right, again, to study, to learn, to grow in understanding, but it's also good sometimes, like I said, to fall on our knees or to stand in awe and worship our creator, like Paul does here. He gets to this point where he just is overwhelmed by who God is and he worships him. So if you're a parent or have a parent or know a parent, you've probably heard this cliche saying, because I said so, right? That's sometimes when we just get tired of explaining something to our kids, we say, because I said so. And again, this can sound harsh and it doesn't always sit well and it's not always the right answer to give, but what is the intention behind it. The intention behind that saying to our kids is to say, I'm your parent. I've lived more life than you, little (laughs) three-year-old. I've seen a bigger picture of everything than you have so far. I understand more than you do right now. Trust me. What I want for you is good. You can't understand everything yet, and, but my intention's not to harm you or make you upset. And even if you feel that way, trust me. I've got more of the whole picture than you do. So if that's true for us as humans, how much more true is that for God who made the entire universe and is eternal? He's all-knowing, all-understanding, all-powerful. There will be truths, even as we continue in Roman, that are hard for us, things that we understand, things that we don't like, 
And it's not wrong, again, I'll say it, to seek understanding, to study, and to learn. I want us to do that. It is a form of worship. But we'll never see everything from God's perspective because we are not God. The point of studying and breaking it down and dissecting it is ultimately to lead us, it's gone, but to lead us to worship him. That is the ultimate point of our studying and seeking to understand, to worship God, the creator, to fall down on our knees and say, you're greater than I am, God. Now again, I have a lot of disclaimers here because I'm not saying we submit just as robots and we never ask questions at all, right? Psalm 77 that we studied with Laura last week is actually my all-time favorite psalm. And the reason that I love this psalm so much is the first half of Psalm 77 is the psalmist pouring his heart out to God. And he's not happy. He's pouring it out with questioning and wondering what God is doing. God, are you? did you abandon me? Am I all alone now? Are you ever going to be there for me again? Am I going to spend all my days just crying out on my pillow and not feel you? That's the whole first half of the psalm. This psalm is just crying out and questioning God and asking him. And you know what? God could handle that. But the second half of the psalm, ultimately the psalmist comes to the same conclusion that Paul does here. And he says, you're God and I am not. You've been good and you're going to continue to be good. So again, Romans is a hard book to read, and it was probably a hard letter for that early church to even read. It requires us to assume a certain position of humility that's not natural for us, because we live in a culture where we want all the answers. We don't want to be humble. It's not our natural reaction. We almost need permission, I feel like, sometimes to say, It's okay that I don't understand everything. So if you've struggled to understand anything in Romans up to this point, that's okay. You're in good company. Probably every single one of us here can say that. It's okay to not understand everything about God and his ways and to still worship him. So I feel this way sometimes when I watch planet Earth. I have this little tradition with my oldest that sometimes we'll stay up past the three littles and watch some episodes of Planet Earth. And if you guys have ever watched it, it is crazy, right? This is like they get the video footage of these weird places all around the world of these creatures that you're like, how does something like that even exist? And it it brings up all these questions. Like when I see there's a spider in some faraway desert that does cartwheels down the side of a desert hill to get away from its predators, like, that's bizarre. (laughs) Or that there's bats that live in these underground caves on some other continent. I can't remember all the details right now, but I just remember that there's these bats somewhere that use their spit to make nests. And then people go get these spit nests, and it's like a delicacy to eat in soup. I don't know. It is bizarre stuff when you watch this, right? And when I watch this, I am amazed, but it also brings up a lot of questions. I don't understand all of this. I don't understand all these creatures. There are worlds on this planet alone that we know nothing about. But God knows He created them. He knows. 
so I don't understand it all when I watch these shows. I don't get it, but it makes me in awe of our creator that God does. And I probably drive myself because through the whole episode, every time I'm going, Asher, can you believe it? Like, can you believe that God is so creative that he thought of this bat that makes spitness? Like, this is bizarre, but God is so creative. And he, he designed all of this, and he created all of this. Similarly, my husband, when he was in medical school, and he had to take all of these really in-depth science classes, especially like about the human body and how it works and how all the different parts function. You know, there were times where people would say, does studying science that in-depth cause you to doubt your faith in God? And he would say, no, exactly the opposite. The more I study, the more I learn about how everything works, the more questions I have, but the more sure I am that there is a designer and that there is a creator who put this all together. So again, Paul, as much as he's been trying to teach in this letter to this church in Rome, he gets to this point and he cries out in praise, who can know or understand the mind of God? So remember I said that in some Bibles, this portion is referred to as the doxology. And doxology is an expression of praise to God. And it usually comes like at the end of a hymn. So it's at the end of this section here. And it's a moment to pause and to respond in praise to God, just as Paul is doing here. One commentator said this about Romans 11, and I thought this was really helpful too. He said... The majesty, grandeur, and wisdom of God's plan revealed in verses 1 through 32 caused Paul to burst out in praise in verse 33. This doxology is a fitting response not only to God's future plans for Israel described in chapters 9 through 11, but to Paul's entire discussion of our justification by faith in chapters 1 through 11. It's his response in all that he's written to praise God. Growing up in the church that I grew up in, it was a small Presbyterian church, and at the end of every service, we sang the doxology. We would actually all stand up and hold hands across the aisles and sing this as a response to what had just taken place in the service. Now, I am not going to sing it because I cannot sing, but I will read you the words. It says, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. So rather today than focusing on breaking it all down line by line and completely understanding every little thing, I want us to stop and pause as Paul did and to respond to God in praise that we are grafted into his family, that we're justified by our faith in Jesus, and that God is the creator. And when we can't understand everything, he is still good. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.